0: Welcome to Free and Fair with Fernita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Fernita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law.
1: And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law.
0: Before we begin, a quick note you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.
1: Hey, listeners! We're delighted that you're with us for another episode of Free and Fair with Franita and Foley. Um, like last time, we're uh, recording under uh, the quarantine conditions that the virus is imposing on all of us, uh, and so our technology is not the most ideal. We're still troubleshooting that, and and with each new episode, we should have improvements. I think uh, this week is is better than the previous episode. But you may hear some glitches. uh, But they don't uh, take away from the substance of a great conversation with our guests. Uh, And with that, uh, here's the episode. Hey, Fernita, how are you?
0: Good. How are you doing?
1: We're holding our own. You know, uh, this is the new way of life for us. We're making the best of it. How about you?
0: I'm definitely hanging in there, you know, spending time with family. working, but also following some pretty interesting news. Um, so, you know, we still have a presidential election this year, and we've spent a lot of time talking about corona and how it affects our system of elections and the ability of people to vote. But also, you know, um, there's a recent story out about Justin Amash, who is a, a, a Republican congressman from Michigan who's thinking about um, lodging a third-party challenge against President Trump. Um, and he's been a longtime critic of the president and so interestingly enough this raises really interesting questions about the role of third parties in our system and um, it, it, it also touches on um, core issues about how the Electoral College is supposed to work whether or not the Electoral College can accommodate third-party challengers and um, and I know this is something that you've studied and written about extensively you have a new book out on the Electoral College and so Um, I'm really excited about our conversation today, in part because um, we get to to delve into your work, which is really relevant to current controversies over whether or not uh, Justin Amash will be able to successfully have a third-party challenge, um, or if it's just something our system simply cannot accommodate. And so um, I think we should start there.
1: Yeah, no, sounds good. And and thanks um, uh, for mentioning the new book and, and for the work. I know you and I have had a chance to talk about it in other contexts and your your comments have been really helpful both in early draft reading early drafts and i appreciate that uh so this is something i worry about a lot because i want our system to make sense and be rational and give voters the opportunity to choose candidates that the voters want and so we need to figure out what does that mean to have a rational system and I kind of worry that we have the worst of both worlds, because on the one hand, we think of uh, American elections as two-party competition, you know, red team versus blue team, the elephants versus the donkeys. And there's some truth to that. But we do have third, fourth, fifth candidates. The reason why the butterfly ballot in Florida was the butterfly ballot is because there were 10 candidates on it for president, and they had to cram them all in, and didn't work so well. So, and yet, if it isn't genuinely a multi-party race, it doesn't really function that way because it doesn't give um, other candidates a realistic chance of success. And so they're often pejoratively called spoilers, which is a really mean label. They sometimes function that way, unfortunately, but it's kind of not their fault. I think a well-designed system would allow them to have a fair shot at at attracting attention. After all, um, we've had transformation in American history. We haven't always had the exact same two parties, right? The the modern Republican Party was an invention of the 1850s as a free soil, free labor, anti-slavery party um, after the so-called Whig Party collapsed and you had Abraham Lincoln and other figures you know, creating a new party before the Civil War. Um, you know, The progressive party during the progressive era tried to be a, 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 a significant third party. It, ra- it ran Teddy Roosevelt in 1912. Um, it wasn't able to displace the Republicans and the Democrats, but that's another example of where we've had insurgencies and Teddy Roosevelt was, in some ways, more popular than even the major party candidates that year. We could we could discuss that anyway. Right.
0: But he did split the vote, right? Which sort of contributes to this. He split the vote in the Republican Party, him and William Howard Taft. So it does contribute to this sense that um, third parties can do more harm than good. Um, and and I'm wondering, you know. Do you think so? So for example, let's Justin Amash has staked out his position for a long time, just in terms of his disapproval of the president's policies, right, even though he's a Republican, and that's pretty uncharacteristic in um, the Republican Party nowadays, right? You don't see a lot of open criticism of the president from people who are part of the party. And so it makes me wonder, Ned, about our conversation around third party challengers, right? Like historically, they have been designed to Um, or at least they played the role of sort of forcing the parties to acknowledge and take serious certain issues, right? And so I think, you know, had we been living in any other time outside of the polarization that we live in now, perhaps Justin Amash wouldn't be considering a White House run um, with the goal of, like, causing trouble, right, or spoiling the race, but more so about forcing the Republican Party to acknowledge the issues that honestly made him run for Congress in the first place, right? He ran as a Tea Party Republican. Um, And so, you know, one possible way of framing his run is, you know, he's trying to force certain issues back into the forefront of the party. Yet the conversation, um, at least what I've been reading in the the press about his run, it seems to suggest that it's really about causing problems for the president. Um, And so, you know, I, I, I invite your thoughts about our conversation about third party candidates and how we ended up in a world where, We view them as as mostly spoilers, right? That was the conversation around Jill Stein in 2016. That was the conversation around Ralph Nader in 2000. Um, Whereas I think historically they have um, been somewhat useful in in pushing parties to uh, take certain policy positions. Um, So how do how do we explain this disconnect between how they used to be viewed and how we view them now?
1: Yeah. So this is a really tough question. It's complicated because uh, we can only have one winner if we're t- especially if we're talking presidential election right we got one one chief executive and yet we're going to have many candidates in the process just think just on the democratic party nomination this year before it came down to biden you, it wasn't that long ago where we had 20 people wanting to be in the debates and the debates had to be on two different n- nights right mm-hmm. and in 2016 on the republican side they had something similar so you're going to have multiple candidates and one question is whether or not they should run inside the party, a major party like Republicans or Democrats, or run mm-hmm. outside. Bernie Sanders had this, right? I mean, Bernie, is Bernie Sanders a Democrat or not? In some ways, it might have made sense for him to be a third-party independent candidate. He ultimately realized that if he had any shot, it ha- he had to run as a Democrat, even though in the Senate, he's nominally an independent, right? So mm-hmm. every politician needs to make a choice. Are they inside the big tent or outside. And I think a well-designed system would allow third parties to flourish more, but not mess up the final decision of who wins. So to figure that out, to me, the most fundamental question is, should the winner of an election be a majority winner or a plurality winner? Now, those are technical terms that we can unpack. Plurality simply means more votes than any other candidate, whereas majority means more than 50%. And if you have a true two-party system and only two parties, those two things are the same. Majority and plurality are identical when they're only two because more than the other is a majority, it's more than 50%. So the divergence between plurality winners and majority winners only exists mathematically when you've got a third candidate or a fourth candidate in potential. And so that's where something like a Justin Amash might make a difference on your sense of legitimacy of the outcome, or is this working properly as a democracy? Because, now again, the, our presidential elections are complicated by the electoral college and the fact that we've got 50 states. Um, but let's just take a pivotal state. Let's take his home state of Michigan. Suppose the entire Electoral College turns on Michigan, and he's particularly popular there. So I'm making up some numbers now, but suppose you know uh Trump has you know something around 40 to 45 percent, Biden has around 40 to 45 percent, and Amash gets the rest. Um, you know between um, Trump and Biden, who's slightly ahead, might have made a difference on whether Amash is in the race, race or not, right? Because if he's not on the ballot and it's just Trump or Biden, then it is a two-party contest. And those people who would prefer Amash might have to hold their nose and say, do I prefer Trump or Biden? Once Amash is a factor, he could be pulling votes from either Trump or Biden, right? He could be splitting the anti-Trump vote with Biden, kind of suppressing Biden's totals, or he could be splitting the true kind of conservative Republican vote with Trump suppressing Trump's um, totals. So either Biden or Trump could be getting a kind of artificial windfall from Amash's presence in the race. He should be allowed to be in the race, but shouldn't we figure out who the voters really want if it turns out Amash is always in third place and never displaces either Biden or Trump in being more popular than than one of the other two, right?
0: This is so interesting to me because it actually suggests that it might have been better for Amash to run, uh, to try to primary President Trump, right? Because if his goal is to push the Republican Party back towards certain policy positions, then um, the primary makes sense as opposed to running in the general election and taking votes away from Biden, who I- I'm sure he doesn't really care about Democratic Party positions, right? But he could actually have the effect of helping the very person he's trying to challenge get reelected as run- by running as an insurgent. So I think you're right about sort of this, this strategy being important and, you know, sort of answering core questions about what the third party run is designed to do. Um, But but your book has a solution for this. And so I want to spend a little bit of time of thinking about how you envision a well designed system being able to both accommodate a third party challenger, um, but also making sure that the person who wins the presidential election is the choice of the voters.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, So, yeah, the solution that the book talks about is making sure we have majority winners in each and every state, especially the pivotal states like a Michigan or Wisconsin this year, or Pennsylvania, Florida, because under the constitution, each state already has the power to determine how its electors are chosen. And for here, we may have to do a little bit of uh, electoral college one one kind of thing just to explain for everybody how the system works. I think most people might remember from high school or you know, college that, um, you know, we have this system where you and I as citizens don't technically vote for president. We get to vote for these so-called electors. Each state has a number of electors that's equal to their representation in Congress, both their representatives plus their senators. So for example, Florida has 29 electoral votes, two senators and I guess 27 representatives. And um, every state is its own elect, there is no one single electoral college. In fact, the term electoral college isn't in the constitution. They just talk about the meeting of the electors, but there are 51 different meetings, all 50 states plus the District of Columbia. And, uh, And so, and then what the constitution does say is that each state can determine how to choose its own electors. Now most, all states thankfully give us voters the right to vote for these electors, um, but they could do it in different ways. And Maine and Nebraska, in fact, have kind of divvied the states up into, into congressional districts in part, they rely on their congressional districts to appoint electors. Now that I think is a little silly because it, it tracks gerrymandering, right? If you had gerrymandering right. congressional districts like Michigan has had, then you would be gerrymandering your presidential election. So not, not a good idea. But what Maine has done is use that same power for this year to adopt something called ranked choice voting, um, which we've touched on briefly, but haven't really fully explained, I don't think in previous episodes. And ranked choice voting gives the voter a ballot that instead of voting for just one candidate, you can rank them. It's like Mm -hmm. having a list of flavors of ice cream and saying my favorite is chocolate, but I prefer vanilla to strawberry, so I rank them you know in order of preference. So that would really be a great solution if you have a, somebody like Justin Amash on the ballot, and because then people who would gravitate to him could rank him first, and then decide is their second choice Biden or is their second choice Trump,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the computers in the system could then generate a majority choice through the full sets of rankings that the voters have provided for. Um, there's other ways to achieve majority rule besides the, the ranked choice ballot, but given the power of modern computers, that's probably the most efficient and, uh, and most successful way to do it. And Maine is, has taken the lead in, in showing all the states that they already have the constitutional power to do this.
0: Right, yeah, the problem is that um... Swing states will have to do it, you know, preferably every state. But the fact that this is power that remains with each state, you know, do you think that w- there will ever come a time where there will be momentum towards ranked choice voting for presidential elections? Or is this something that you view as sort of a long-term fight to try to, um, you know, I guess, fix the electoral college? Like, I know there are a few proposals now about how to fix it. Is Do you think that this becomes part of that conversation? Or is this something that, you know, could realistically become um, something that we implement soon
1: <laughs> and the yeah, well,
0: next 20 years. Soon. <laughs> yeah, no,
1: I think so. I mean, I do think the momentum for ranked choice voting is building pretty considerably. I mean, it obviously hasn't swept the country right. instantaneously, but At local, like the city of Santa Fe, New Mexico has adopted ranked choice voting in the last couple of years. Um, Maine now uses it for congressional elections also. Other cities like San Francisco uses it and Minneapolis. um, I think a couple of other states are looking at it statewide, Massachusetts, I think Colorado may be looking at it, um, mm-hmm. so so it's getting more attention, and I also think the public is kind of understanding it better. Right. So, you know, ten years ago, if you used the phrase "rank choice voting," people would like have no clue as to what you're talking about. Now I think people have a more intuitive sense of just what ranking means and what a ranked choice ballot might might look like and And I you know if if we have another anomaly where the popular vote goes one way and the electoral college goes another way this year. I think the impetus of some kind of reform becomes all the more urgent. And, and again, one advantage to this reform is it, it can happen on a state-by-state basis without a constitutional amendment or without a so-called interstate compact. And the power of it in swing states is pretty dramatic. You mentioned um, Florida in 2000, we talked about the butterfly ballot and all the, all the issues there, but you know Ralph Nader was on the ballot in Florida he, you know, he wanted to be the Green Party candidate and more, even more environmentalist than Al Gore, uh-huh. which is fine. it's is his right to do. But I think political scientists pretty clearly show that if there had been a ranked choice ballot, that more Nader voters would have picked Gore over Bush. And after Nader kind of drops out because he's got less support than either Bush or Gore, Gore would then become the majority winner. Well, if that, if that had happened in Florida, you wouldn't have had to worry about hanging chads or anything else. It would have been the use of ranked choice voting would have showed that Gore was really preferred more than Bush in Florida. That preference was masked by the, the lack of a ranked choice ballot, if you will, and the fact that there were more than two candidates. But if, if, if just Florida had used ranked choice voting, in 2000, that would have been decisive. So Mm -hmm. without a constitutional amendment, without a multi-state compact, this is a powerful proposal. Um, And if it turns out that a single state is the tipping state this year, and and if it turns out that Justin Amash gets more votes than the margin between Trump and Biden Mm -hmm. in the pivotal state, I think that's going to cause people to think, well, wait a second, shouldn't we have used a ranked choice ballot to figure out what that state really wants between between Trump and Biden?
0: Right. Every good policy comes out of a disaster, unfortunately, right? Um, but I've, I've also been thinking to some extent about whether or not your proposal could also have some other positive downstream effects. Um, so it's really hard for third-party challengers to get on the ballot in some states, right? And part of it is because the gatekeepers are members of the two major parties. They have an incentive to keep them off. But it seems to me that ranked choice voting might actually make them worry less, right, about sort of policing the ballot in a way that they do. Um, And that could be especially important in a year like this year where we're dealing with the pandemic. And um, because one thing I've thought about is, wow, you know, people who are thinking about third-party runs for president how do they get on the ballot in all fifty states if they have a signature requirement, right? How do you go door to door when we are in sheltering in place? Right. Um, and so, just you know, different concerns like that. And um, the two major parties have no incentive to, to change the rules at this point. They have every incentive to keep these people off the ballot, right? And um, and and if one believes that third parties actually serve an important policy goal, um, then maybe that's a problem. And it seems to me that ranked choice voting might actually uh, provide some incentive for um, the two major parties not to police the ballots such that voter uh, choice is constrained artificially.
1: Oh, you're absolutely right. I think that's a really important point um, and one that should get emphasized you know, much more in this conversation because, and, and, and the way you put it is such an important positive way because as I've um, talked to people about my book and about the problem, the so-called spoiler effect and the way third parties can be disruptive, an instinct that some people have, including some of our election law um, colleagues in in our field, say, well, the solution should be to restrict ballot access, right? In other words, the way to avoid this problem of having a, a third candidate maybe make the difference is guarantee that you just have two candidates on the ballot, which would be more of the duopoly you know and and control um, first of all i I don't think that's feasible, given current constitutional law. The Supreme Court has pretty much said that third parties have to have a fair shot at the ballot. Uh, but even apart from that, you know there's kind of an inherent unfairness to limit the choice to two now, I do think you could have a system where kind of like what California has with its top two primary system, where you could have a preliminary vote, say around Labor Day, which has all your extra candidates on the ballot, like your Green Party, your Libertarian Party, your Constitution Party, Reform Party, you know, Socialist Workers Party, everybody could be on the ballot around Labor Day and then your top two finalists make it into the November ballot. That, I think, would pass constitutional muster and, you know, give the third parties a fair shot at, at overtaking the other two, but not as fair a shot as ranked choice voting. I think ranked choice voting by having just one election, you have one election day, you don't have some early vote on Labor Day when people are still on vacation, hopefully, even with the pandemic. <laughs> so the turnout would be tiny. And for, you know, so on, on, on election day, you have, you have your Justin Amash and whoever else, but you use this ranked choice ballot, it it's, gives everybody a fair shot. So I think it opens up the system positively, but avoids the spoiler effect. Yeah. So, so in that sense, I think it is a very constructive reform And hopefully, it will just gain more traction. Uh, As you say, unfortunately, we need disasters to get reform. And I don't want it to be disasters. But this reform is worth pushing, I think.
0: Um, So now seems like a good time to talk about um, um, one part of your book that is, I I always get very excited in sort of thinking about um, how you frame this issue of uh electing a president who is a choice of the majority of voters Uh, because honestly i i never thought about it like that when people talk about the electoral college they are referencing the electoral college of 1787 they are not thinking about the 12th amendment right for most people it's just an amendment it's a technical fix right it it requires people to uh, the electors to uh use separate ballots for the president and vice president that's how most people think of it but i think one of the really wonderful things about the book is that it corrects that impression. It's like, no, the 12th Amendment actually put forth a different version of the Electoral College. And so one of the the wonderful things about the book is that you show how ranked choice voting is actually more in line with the expectations of 1803 um, than one might think, right? Um, and it's not, you know, I wouldn't say that it's an originalist argument, but it, it does show how history is revelatory here. Um, but importantly, you also go through various presidential elections throughout history in order to show whether or not they comport with the expectations of the Electoral College um, post 12th Amendment. Um, and one election in particular that we've talked about in the past and that I think our listeners uh, will be really interested in is the, is the election of 1860, right? Um, because in part, I think people would be troubled by the idea that Abraham Lincoln lacks the, the legitimacy um, that will be conferred by being a majority winner in the a majority winner as defined by the, the post Twelfth Amendment Electoral College. And so, I want to invite you to say a couple words about that because I know that during our conversations, I'm always excited to hear your view about Lincoln's election.
1: Well, thanks. Yeah, and and uh, since I don't want to make this a mystery novel, I'll write I'll <laughs> to the conclusion and say the good news here is that uh, Lincoln is an authentic, proper winner according to the way the system's supposed to work, and the the South, you know, improperly recognized that when they complained about Lincoln's victory, and we'll, we'll unpack that that more. And I, but I was surprised. The thing that I was most nervous in. As I was doing research, was was worrying that that might not be true. That 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 somehow the work that I was doing would undercut Lincoln, and I wouldn't. Wa- you know, that would mm-hmm. be distasteful for me. I, you know, it wouldn't. Be. So I was very pleasantly surprised, but quite surprised that Lincoln's election works according to the system. But that requires some explanation. So if it's okay with you, Fernita, what I'd like to do. First is distinguish, as you said, between the original Electoral College, which most people think about when they think about the Electoral College at all, versus, as you say, that the 12th Amendment actually is not just technical, but quite philosophical in an important way, and then try to explain that. And then once we've got that kind of under our belt, so to speak, then we can show how Lincoln works in connection with the 12th Amendment. So can we take it in two yes. part-
0: Please, I, th- I think our listeners will benefit greatly.
1: Well, thanks. So the way in which I like to think about the difference between the original Constitution and its electoral college on the one hand versus the 12th Amendment on the other is the image of the two winners that the authors had in mind. So the original Constitution was kind of built for George Washington. They, ca- they knew that he would be the first winner of the original electoral college. And what they liked about George Washington and and how they viewed him was that he was sort of the father of the country and he was above partisanship. They had hoped that their whole constitution would avoid nasty political parties or at least keep them in check as factions that wouldn't coalesce into permanent parties. You know, this is the Federalist Papers and their whole theory of separation of powers and so forth. They wanted the presidency to be above the fray. And they thought they created an electoral college and gave the electors this complicated voting process that would produce consensus winners. And and they thought even after George Washington left and wasn't president, that their system would produce people as close to George Washington as possible by being, again, as much above the fray, as much a consensus choice. it didn't the system did not work as soon as washington left it fell apart mm-hmm. and we got intense party competition between the so-called federalist party on the one hand that's john adams and alexander hamilton versus thomas jefferson and james madison on the other and it's very kind of sad because you know the founders kind of joined in writing the federalist papers and liking the constitution for the most part there were the there was the people who opposed the constitution but You know, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton co-wrote the Federalist Papers, and then they start hating each other after 1792. Right. Uh, And so then there's this terrible election of 1800 in terms of it almost being a civil war, and we could talk about the details if we want to, but the upshot is we, we avoid violence after 1800. And Thomas Jefferson, Wins, and he's in office, and then he's running for reelection in 1804, and he's the majority party at that point, both in in the White House and then also in Congress, and the, and and I like to call them the Jeffersonian Party because Jefferson is the, their head, uh-huh. and they they're the ones who redesigned the Electoral College in 1803 by writing the 12th Amendment to the Constitution. And and so their image of an authentic winner is no longer George Washington above the fray. It is Thomas Jefferson as head of a party, because they now see a world where there is going to be this two-party competition, us versus them. And they think at least the majority party should prevail. Now, they have a complicated concept of a majority party, um, it's built for a federal system the united uh-huh. states of america so you get to a federal majority by building state-based majorities uh-huh. and of course majority votes in the states doesn't comport to our conception of one person one vote women aren't voting jefferson is a slave owner so it's not what we would think of as a an appropriate system so when they mean majority rule they mean majority of the eligible voters. They just define eligible voters quite narrowly, but they do think to be an authentic winner of an election, you should get a majority support. So they want that national federal majority to be built from the state-based majorities. And so when Jefferson is fighting either John Adams or his other opponents, if he gets more votes, according to the system, that makes him authentic so um and what's really interesting comparing to lincoln we'll get to lincoln in a second in in 1803 jefferson is actually more popular than even 1800 because and he, he, you know usually the president incumbent president doesn't do so well in the midterms uh-huh. but but in the 1802 m- midterms jefferson does fantastic because his louisiana purchase is really popular. Uh-huh. But the Federalist Party, which is based in New England, hates the Louisiana Purchase, because they see all the new states that are gonna be created of this Western territory are gonna be states that are gonna favor Jefferson and his party and and those sorts of interests. The New Englanders are are mostly a seafaring people who wanna trade with old England. Jefferson is pro-France, right i mean that's how we get the louisiana purchase so the, so there isn't the first secessionist movement of the country believe it or not is not the south but it's these new england you know whalers and fishers cod fishers who think we want to leave the united states because we don't like jefferson we don't like those virginia folks and kentucky folks and they're just getting bigger so let let's split off new england and have our own country Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have the Senate, sitting senator from Connecticut being the leader of the secessionist movement. I mean, it's like Jefferson Davis. It's just you know, <laughs> half a century earlier. <laughs> um, but, and so when they actually are debating in Congress, the 12th Amendment and the Electoral College, the New Englanders are saying, we shouldn't have majority rule because we're the minority party, they realize that, and we want to make sure we get a veto and that you can't have a president of the United States who's unacceptable to us. And the Jeffersonians say, no, 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 it's majority rule, and even if you're a geographically located minority in New England, you don't have a veto right and you don't have a right to secede. What you have a right is to participate in this system. And, but if our guy Jefferson wins a majority of electoral votes by being the majority preferred candidate in enough states, he's entitled to be chief executive of the whole country, and your rights are protected through the Bill of Rights. There We have other ways to protect you, but you don't get a veto over the presidency. So they think all this through. Um, and, that's, and then fast forward to 1860. The way that Lincoln wins is exactly the way he's supposed to, according to the Jeffersonian vision. Because even, you know, that, that is a split election. There's no doubt about it. The country is, is divided. But Jefferson wins a majority of electoral votes in 1860 by winning a majority of votes in enough states. He doesn't get any votes in the South, for sure. Like, he's not even on the ballot in, in the deep South. But he's authentic in the same way that Jefferson was, because Jefferson could win a majority without New England at all. And so when the South rejects Jefferson, excuse me, when the South rejects Lincoln in 1860 and wants to secede because they don't like Lincoln, they're repudiating the 12th Amendment deal. They're they're being as secessionist as those New Englanders were. It's just a different place in a different time, but it's the same mistake in terms of the fundamental decision that was made to keep the country together and have a president elected in this Jeffersonian way.
0: That is so interesting. One thing that stood out to to me that um, I hadn't really thought about before, you pointed out that the first secession movement was, you know, 1800, 1802, like around that time, whereas we think of the South seceding in 1860. But you said secession is illegal, right? They told them you can't secede and instead you don't get to, and, you, and on top of the fact that you can't secede, you don't get a chance to, to sort of veto, um, have veto authority over who's the president. Um, it's, I, that's interesting to me because I'm wondering how it carried forward, right? This idea that the entire Revolutionary War was basically a secession movement. Right, but by the time, right, but by the time we get to the turn of the century, secession is illegal. Right, it almost seems makes the Constitution seem like a suicide pact, in some ways. Right, um, but also on top of that, there's this really important sense, at least to me, that the Twelfth Amendment creates a Constitution that now envisions political parties. Right, we don't get to call it a apolitical document anymore. Um, whereas in 1787, we can, you know, we've created this narrative about the document being anti-party. And this is why the twelfth amendment, twelfth amendment is is important, though, right? Because it, it changes that narrative fundamentally, right? They they know that there will be political parties, and in fact, they think political parties are the best way to facilitate the type of majoritarianism that uh, signifies the legitimacy of the presidency. Um, and that is really fascinating, and it really shows that the amendment is more than just a technical fix. Um, and so I don't know. Um, I I never it, prior to reading your book, I never made this connection between you know, what happened in 1860 and with what happened in 1802, 1803. And also, I, I never appreciated the extent to which the 12th Amendment fundamentally changed our conception of how the Electoral College is supposed to work. Um, but importantly, one other thing that it opens the door for is um, it, it, it allows us to critique other proposals to change the Electoral College, right? Because now we have a clear sense of Um, sort of the expectations and understandings of the Electoral College as it existed uh, post-12th Amendment. Um, And so it changes the narrative, and it also changes our sense of what counts as a valid fix. Um, So with that being said, I want to invite you to comment a little bit on the National Popular Vote Initiative, right? Because there's a question as to whether or not, is that the solution to our problems, right? We've talked about ranked choice voting, um, and and I, I am interested to hear your take on it as it in a sense of whether or not it aligns with the post 12th Amendment expectations of how the Electoral College is supposed to work.
1: Yeah, so in a word, no, but I'll say a little <laughs> bit more than that. <laughs> um, but I do wanna underscore the importance of one of the things that you said, which is absolutely true, which is the 12th Amendment, unlike the original constitution, is built on the assumption that we're gonna have political parties and that they're not evil, bad things. They, they're gonna be two of them. And you have to have a fair fight between the two political parties. That's absolutely right. And what's, again, amazing to me, because I had never read the congressional debates on the 12th Amendment before, was how deeply rich and philosophical these mm-hmm. discussions are. They, they had had a lived experience of the Constitution for you know a dozen years or so. So they had experience under their belt, but they were rethinking their fundamental values in light of that experience. And so they wanted to authenticate this new system that was now going to be predicated on on the existence of two parties what they didn't anticipate though was the third parties and the fourth parties and the fifth um because they were moving from a world where they thought there would be no parties but they got them but they were all, the only competition that they had had up to that point was this intense competition between the federalists and the jeffersonians so they they built a new system for two-party competition, and 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 it sort of started to fall apart, given their own expectations, once third parties came on the scene. And, th- and that's why we live now in a world where we can't really accommodate third parties as much as we should, given that they are present. So right. now going to your question about the so-called national popular vote compact idea, I think it's... I want to put my cards on the table so that people know where I'm coming from. You know, if I could, I would amend the Constitution to get rid of the Electoral College. I'm not a fan of it. I would like a national popular vote that where voters in California and voters in Ohio and Vermont and Arkansas all were equally one person, one vote across the country. Um, But I, I think for reasons that we've talked about, I think it should be a majority winner nationwide that's president, you know in a th- whether it's a three way race involving Ross Perot back in nineteen ninety two or um again you know Teddy Roosevelt in nineteen twelve whenever you have a significant third party, it seems to me you ought to have a system rank choice voting or otherwise to say okay the the chief executive of the nation should have some form of majority support. I guess philosophically, I personally agree with the Jeffersonians in that way. I just don't need it to be a complicated federal system. It could be nationwide. The problem is, without a constitutional amendment, we can't do two things, both of which are desirable, unfortunately. We can achieve a system that comports with the Jeffersonian vision of a of a federal majority rule or a compound majority rule by instituting ranked choice voting as we've talked about. And that would bring our system back into alignment with its philosophical foundations. So that's why that's my preferred choice. As long as we have the system that we have, we should make it work the way it's supposed to. Part of the problem with both 2000 and 2016 is that the system didn't even work according to its own premises. People complain about the disconnect between the national popular vote and the electoral college. True, but the authors would say, who cares? We don't have a national popular vote. My complaint is that the system isn't even working the way it's supposed to, <laughs> which is so, you know, the presidency is so important. The winner should be Kind of the product of the way the system is designed until we change the system in this and it's not the system's kind of gone haywire because it doesn't handle third parties properly so so i would say let's get the system back in alignment by having ranked choice voting at the state level but it is true that that reform does not achieve um one monolithic election nationwide. So you would still have battleground states, right? We've talked about how Michigan should have ranked choice voting or Florida should have ranked choice voting. All true, but it still leaves New York and California and Mississippi as outliers because the deep blue states and the deep red states are gonna be deep blue and red regardless. It's where, where it matters is the purple states in terms of the battleground. And I can, I'm sympathetic to anybody in California or, and say, hey, wait a second. I don't want to be irrelevant. I want my vote to matter. So that's where the National Popular Vote Compact idea comes in. But it's got some flaws, I think. One is it might be unconstitutional because if you take the view that the basic architecture of the Electoral College is to keep the states as separate sovereigns, And whether we like it or not, we know from Shelby County and other precedents of the Supreme Court that the majority believes in state sovereignty. And so even though the states do have this latitude to choose their method for appointing electors, if they're not allowed to choose a method that's inconsistent with the fundamental premise of state sovereignty, you could get a 5-4 decision or maybe even more, but at least a 5-4 decision just invalidating the compact is inconsistent with state sovereignty. So all this work of reform could go up in smoke in that sense. And, you know, the compact idea has been around since 2000, hasn't been adopted. And if it was adopted, it could get judicially invalidated. So that's That's
0: the problem. That's the deep irony to me too, Ned, because it's been around since 2000 but there, it seems to me that there may be a core Bush versus Gore problem with the compact, right? Because if a state um, chooses to award their electoral votes to a the, the national winner and the state itself didn't vote for that person, um, is it the type of post-election change that disenfranchises a majority of the state's electors, right? Because they've, they've held this election, but the election has functionally been validated. Um, and it seems to me that that runs into trouble just on the, the terms of how the court resolved Bush versus Gore in stopping the recount because they viewed it as a post-election change to the rules.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good point, too. So, I mean, I think the compact is vulnerable to several litigation challenges, That the one that you're mentioning being at maybe the top of the list. Um, but then also the fact that it hasn't been adopted despite being around for 20 years now it can't get adopted unless enough states sign on. They've got to reach the magic number of 270 and they're still many states short. Um, They've gotten some few over the last few years because of 2016, but they're still, they're not going to get there before 2020. And again, whereas the ranked choice voting idea, you know, if if you thought that one state, Wisconsin or Michigan might be the pivotal state and you just adopted that reform this year, it has that much more power because you don't need the compact. But then the third point is, again, I like the idea of a nationwide vote, but I don't, just think about these numbers for a second. Suppose we had, and I, I don't mean this partisan, I just think it's a failure of, of, of small d democracy. Suppose Trump wins 43% nation, nationwide. Mm-hmm. And Biden wins 42% nationwide. That leaves, if I can do math in my head, that leaves 15%, right? Mm-hmm. Suppose a third party candidate, whether it's Justin Amash or Howard Schultz or whatever, gets that 15%. That'd be kind of like Ross Perot type numbers from right. like 1992. But suppose we knew that with some sort of runoff, either ranked choice voting or a regular runoff, you take that third candidate out of the race and Biden leapfrogs above 42% and becomes the majority winner. Mm -hmm. The idea that you would have let Trump win based on the nationwide popular vote with only 43% seems inconsistent with the will of the electorate because essentially the electorate would have been saying, we don't want Trump. It's just the anti-Trump vote would have split between 42% for Biden and 15% for that other person, the third party. And yet you'd have Trump squeaking in re-election based on just this 43% plurality when all these ballots are cast against him, right? I mean, if if he gets 43, it means he didn't get 57%. Right.
0: No, I think that's right.
1: And the national popular vote compact doesn't solve that problem. And for all the re- Democrats were freaking out when they thought Howard Schultz might join the race because they, f- they suddenly saw Schultz siphoning away votes from the Democratic nominee, splitting the anti-Trump vote. Well, if, you have, if you're freaking out under the current system, you should freak out under the compact because it re- replicates the same problem on a national level.
0: Right. No, I think that that's right. Um- so, you know, all of the, but you know, let's continue the conversation because I think that it's it's important that we're having it, first of all, um, but um, also importantly to our listeners, they should check out your book, right? Because it, it challenges a lot of the narrative around the Electoral College and it helps to understand what the options are, right? We can have an informed conversation about how to make things better. Um, so I think that we should end it there, but I do want to invite our listeners to join us in um, in the next few episodes we have. Um, it, I think maybe two episodes from now we, we, we will be discussing the faithless elector case um, and so we're going to continue our conversation about the electoral college the supreme court is hearing arguments in that case and so there will definitely be a part two um, and you know this has been a, a wonderful conversation and I look forward to continuing it.
1: well me too yeah no thank you for uh, giving me the chance to talk about the book it was a fun project to work on it's a kind of research project where you don't know what the answer is going to be when you jump in, which is the best kind. The
0: best research project. Yes.
1: Yes. So it's great to, ha- to talk to you as always. And I look forward to next time.
0: All right. Great. Take care now. Stay, stay safe.
1: You too. You and your family. Bye-bye. Bye
0: bye. Bye.